Welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. Today we are going to talk about uh, Google's fresh find in the European Union, about what the hell a cloud kitchen actually is, about highlights of the Startup Europe Summit, about China's Silicon Valley and much more. We also have a pre-recorded interview for you with uh, Martin Willig, the founder of Taxify, which has recently rebranded to become Bolt. I am your host, Andrei Degler, joined today by our research lead, Natalie Novik. Hey, Natalie, how is it going? Hi, Andrei. It's going well. I'm just back from the Startup Europe Summit, which was great, and I can't wait to tell everyone about it. Great. So uh, with this, we will have to wait until almost uh, the end, and uh, let's uh, start with, uh, with the biggest deal of the week. What, what happened? Yeah, so the biggest deal of the week last week was a really exciting one because we have a newly minted European unicorn, which is this time in France, where Dr. Lieb has raised 150 million euros, um, giving them a 1 billion euro valuation. So this company allows you to book a doctor online, and they're going to use this investment to move into the virtual video space with these virtual doctor appointments. And it's also worth mentioning that UiPath, which is the Romanian unicorn, is also announced that they're going to raise a new investment of 400 million US dollars, which will put them at a $7 billion valuation. So a very exciting week last week. Yeah, that's that's great news. And uh, before we dive uh, into the rest of the news of the week, I wanted to say something real quick because we are taping this on uh, Tuesday, the 26th of uh, March. And I do believe that we are going to remember this day more than once uh, in the next uh, few months and maybe even years because today uh, the copyright directive was passed by the European Parliament, uh, which is not a great thing in my opinion. And I have uh, uh, talked uh, about it uh, for many times on this podcast we discussed it uh, as well but uh, it seems like no attempts to make it not go through uh, worked uh, very well and uh, uh, today the MPs uh, voted for the dire directive so I, I've been traveling today most of the time I didn't really read much so Natalie have you caught any general reactions uh, on the internet? Yeah I have actually and um, what as you can imagine the view from the startup ecosystem is very mixed on the copyright directive, uh, especially kind of considering your thoughts that, that you've voiced in the podcast before. Um, I've seen a number of tweets and kind of responses to my tweets about the copyright directive kind of really upset, um, generally kind of disheartened um, about this and kind of suggesting that this will really kill innovation for startups. Um, so it's not particularly positive from the startup ecosystem. At the same time, though, I do feel that we are somewhat in a bubble because I literally don't know a single person who would think that the copyright directive is a good thing. But at the same time, I did receive press releases uh, from certain organizations that uh, were 
saying that uh, they support uh, the copyright directive as it is. So uh, the question is, uh, if you are listening to this and you think that a copyright directive is a good thing, and if you represent the startup and tech uh, community, do let us know. I would really be happy to uh, hear from uh, someone uh, who has arguments uh, against uh, what uh, I'm saying here. Anyway, uh, let's move on, uh, even, especially since the uh, next uh, story is also about the European Commission, uh, but this time it's about the European Commission and Google. So uh, the Commission has slapped Google with a new fine, this time it's 1.49 billion euros, and it has uh, fined Google for anti-competitive behavior uh, in all three of its principal lines of works for now. That's, I think, that's an achievement. So in 2017, there was a fine for the search part of the business. Now in 2018, there was the Android fine. And this year, we're starting with a fine that has to do with Google's ads business. So the commission this time is unhappy with Google's behavior in regards to AdSense. And if you're not acquainted with this particular part of the internet empire, AdSense is the service that website owners use to display play ads at their properties. These ads are based on the searches that the user performs on the website. So every time you visit a website and you see ads by Google, that is if you're not using an ad blocker, of course, and that's AdSense at work. So the commission has spent three years investigating some clauses and that Google included in the contract signed by its partner websites in Europe. It turns out that uh, from 2006 to 2009, so 10 years ago, there was even an exclusivity provision. So Google was basically saying uh, to its partners, okay, if you want to buy ads through AdSense, you can buy them only through AdSense and not uh, through any other uh, competing platform. Uh, later on, uh, this provision changed uh, to a less strict one. The partners only had to guarantee that AdSense ads would be placed in the best and the most prominent parts of web pages. The commission predictably didn't like the idea, even though in 2016, when the investigation only started, uh, Google removed this clause altogether. And here's a quote from uh, uh, Margaret Vestager, uh, the commissioner in charge of competition. Uh, the quote begins, Google has cemented its dominance in online search adverts and shielded itself from competitive pressure by imposing anti-competitive contractual restrictions on third-party websites. This is illegal under EU antitrust rules. The misconduct lasted over 10 years and denied other companies the possibility to compete on the merits and to innovate, and consumers the benefits of competition. The quote ends. Vestager said that the size of the fine, which represents 1.29% of Google's turnover in 2018, reflects the scale and duration of the violation. And the current decision officially requires Google to stop putting the illegal restrictions in its contracts in Europe or any other restriction with an equivalent effect and never put them there again. So Vestager also said uh, an interesting thing, uh, that any companies that believe that they have suffered damage due to Google's anti-competitive behavior may now claim compensations through national courts. So there could be quite a few lawsuits against uh, Google in the coming months uh, coming in different European countries. 
As for a response uh, from Google itself, uh, TechCrunch quoted uh, Kent Walker, uh, the senior vice president of global affairs at Google. And here's a quote. Uh, It begins with, uh, we have always agreed that healthy, thriving markets are in everyone's interest. We have already made a wide range of changes to our products to address the commission's concerns. Over the next few months, we'll be making further updates to give more visibility to rivals in Europe. The quote ends. So this is a very positive uh, response to a fine of one one and a half billion euros and i actually haven't uh, i haven't heard yet whether google is going to appeal uh, this decision or uh, whether it's final so natalie what's your what's your take on it do you think we're going to see even more fines in the future you know, I think Google's response here um, that you quoted by Kent Walker is actually a very classy response. Um, and it doesn't sound like from this case, from kind of from this response um, that they will appeal. Uh, something that's interesting, um, Bloomberg in 2015 said AdSense only contributed less than 20% of Google's revenue. And since then, AdSense, um, it's its status um, in the Google product lineup is has been diminishing. So it's not a really huge part of the business. Uh, so I think um, it, it's fair to say that um, they have responded positively. Um, and of course, that might change. But I think I think this is the, the right move. Yeah, I, I, I kind of I kind of am looking forward to to more fines. I'm just not sure what exactly it would be related to, and whether it would be something new or whether it would be something uh, on the same in the same line that one of the previous fines. Well, the the Verge has estimated Google's total EU antitrust bill at eight point two billion euros. So. Yeah, right. That's uh, the, that's the three things. So that is search, Android, and ads. And then there must be a substantial GDPR fine, and then it would be a great package. <laughs> anyway, so let's uh, let's move on, uh, Natalie. What did you want to talk about? The cloud kitchen, right? Yeah. So I wanted to talk about cloud kitchens today because last week we learned that Keats, which is a Berlin startup, they've just raised a new $13 million round to expand their network of cloud kitchens. So I was thinking, I'll admit, like I read the news and I was like, wait, what is a cloud kitchen? So I wanted to look into this a little bit because in the UK, they're commonly known as ghost kitchens, virtual kitchens, or dark kitchens. And each of these things, they sound kind of the same, but they're each a little bit different. So I thought I would unpack this for everyone in case you might have also um, come 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 across this terminology. So all of these terms refer to restaurants or food venues that don't have a physical location for pickup or seated dining, but they're operating exclusively through food delivery marketplaces. So what's interesting about Keats is that the food that they offer on their through their service it can't be found anywhere else. So they're not restaurants that you could go to, um, not restaurants or brand names that you would have heard of. They're their own branded Keats storefronts, and you can find them exclusively through food delivery apps such as Leaferando, Just Eat, Glovo, etc. And the food that they develop and distribute is entirely made for delivery, which I'll quote, from the design and the recipe and the ideal cooking procedures to the right packaging. So everything that Keats offers is completely designed with food delivery in mind. 
in the UK, there's been a lot of attention and most of this attention has been highly negative over these things, virtual kitchens or ghost kitchens, which operate mostly here as offsite kitchens of known brands that are preparing food exclusively for delivery. So one commentator in The Guardian has called them the satanic mills of our era. And these dark kitchens that they're talking about are a bit different from Keats's model. And many of these ghost kitchens are built in cooperation with a food delivery service, so such as Deliveroo's Editions. These cloud kitchens put known brand restaurants into off-site containers to make food exclusively for delivery purposes, so shifting all orders that are made for food delivery outside of the restaurant. And this model has been challenged extensively in the UK, um, especially Deliveroo's additions, because the company has missed a number of expansion targets thus far. The challenges that have been faced by Deliveroo additions are really multifold. Firstly, dealing with council regulations, and secondly, over hygiene ratings. And this has kind of created a perfect storm, so to speak, for the public against these companies, seeing them as epitomizing their move fast and break things attitude. That has really come to malign a lot of these new innovations in tech. So let's talk a little bit about some of the challenges that the cloud kitchen concept is facing. First is regarding council regulations, and this has to do with exactly where these cloud kitchens or dark kitchens are housed and how they're classified. Notably, some of Deliveroo's additions were built inside of what looked to be shipping containers or temporary buildings with no windows that were placed in very random areas that were not zoned for food preparation. Occasionally, Deliveroo was building these off-site kitchens in urban areas classifying them as light industrial use rather than as a takeaway, which would be a designation that is much more restrictive. So for example, in the UK, there are limits of how many takeaways can be located in a certain area due to obesity regulations, as well as traffic and noise restrictions. An investigation by the Panorama program on the BBC found that one location in London, there was an average of 194 moped scooters visiting the virtual kitchen each hour, which really came under fire from local residents who were upset by the noise and increased traffic. Next, thinking about hygiene regulations, many of the Deliveroo ghost kitchens would operate under a contract status. So you'd have a name branded restaurant, but it was operated by a subsidiary, meaning that it was impossible to get an accurate hygiene rating for the food that was being prepared. So this is a prime concern for those with allergies, but pretty much anyone that wants to know what they're eating. And in the UK, this has really come under a lot of criticism. But Keats is very unique and much different than that. And their business model kind of removes the branded restaurant entirely. And they're currently operating in Spain, Germany, and the Netherlands. And it seems like the reception to their method is much more positive. And when you look at their menus, the food looks really good. And by building offsite kitchens, rather than contracting with existing brands, it might be a more sustainable model, especially if they're not paying for restaurant and wait staff or those prime city center rents. Food delivery in Europe and beyond is something that's going to continue to grow. And one projection I read estimates the market to increase to $365 billion by 2030. 
And former Uber CEO Travis Kalanick has a company in this space. And it's something that in Scotland, where, where I live, the appetite for ghost kitchens is actually very positive in contrast with the rest of the UK. And Scottish Enterprise is actively looking to court entrepreneurs in this space to promote what it sees is a, quote, positive disruption of the food service industry. So maybe, hopefully, Keats will be visiting Scotland next. But it does make me wonder about some of the negative externalities of these off-site kitchens, um, and meaning more of us will be staying in our homes. There might be less social interaction. People aren't going out to restaurants as much. And in the UK, people often question what it means for high streets and these commercial areas where restaurants are. In any case, it's something that I think will be a continuing trend. Food delivery has absolutely exploded across Europe and is a really highly invested sector. So I think it's gonna we're gonna continue to see things like this. And it's it's is very exciting, but important to know that not everything is positive and more transparency into this space is very necessary. So uh, moving forward in the agenda for today is an interview with uh, Martin Villig from uh, Bolt, which we used to know as uh, Taxify, uh, recorded by Robin Wouters, our uh, founding editor. Uh, Let's listen to Martin and Robin and uh, be back in a bit with uh, event uh, highlights and recommendations. Hey, Robin Walters for Tech.eu, and I'm here in Cluj, Romania for the Startup Europe Summit, uh, sitting down with Martin Willig, who's uh, one of the co-founders of uh, Taxify, now Bolt, uh, one of the, the big Estonian uh, tech companies. Um, so maybe you can uh, do the basic introduction. What is Taxify? Or I should say Bolt. What is Bolt? So Bolt is uh, yeah European-born uh, uh, transport platform. We operate in Europe and Africa, and we started with uh, taxis or ride-hailing, and now we have expanded to also motorcycles and like rickshaw or tuk-tuk types of um, vehicles in Africa. And in uh, September, we introduced electric scooters also in Paris and looking for next cities on that. So, And today, we announced also food delivery to be opened in the next few months. So... So we are becoming a wider platform, and that's why we also renamed. So we grew out of the Taxify name, which we started with cars, and, and now with all all the future services. And, and what the Bolt might mean is, uh, Bolt means actually fast or electric. So that also shows that um, we see that in five or ten years, the transport will be fast and electric. Great. Well, I think it's a great name uh, for what you're trying to do. Uh, which which markets are you active in now and where would you like to expand to in the near future? So we're currently operating in uh, over 100 cities now in 30 markets. So I think that puts us even number two globally in terms of coverage. And uh, I, we cover majority of European markets, uh, six markets in uh, sorry Africa and then also Australia, Mexico and few post-Soviet markets like uh, Georgia, uh, what Azerbaijan and a few others, and we are looking for Nordics, uh, also new Balkan markets recently launched in Croatia. Uh, considering also looking at the Russian side, so yeah, constantly looking for expansion wherever the regulation and competition looks interesting. Yeah, that was going to be my next question, of course. So, what does the regulatory map uh, look like in Europe and Africa? Uh, yeah, where, where where do you see the most challenges and opportunities? Um, so, uh, in terms of opportunities, um, yeah, uh, we, the Baltics were the first region to actually take the new generation transport laws. And this has been now expanded to Eastern Europe. Five, six countries are making new laws there. 
Where we see still problems is um, Germany, Italy, Spain, and some of the Nordic markets, which are still very much closed and traditional taxi-centric. Taxi is a luxury service there. Average ride is 25 euros, and then person taking less than two rides a year, which clearly shows that it's not a commodity service. And and uh, and yeah, we we see that we need to work with policymakers to actually try to convince and open these markets to actually yeah. People would replace their own cars and start to use more on demand. That's that's the future. Great. Uh, well, you're well uh, on the map now after uh, raising quite a big funding round at this unicorn valuation, which sort of puts you in a, in a select club. But what I think is more impressive about the, the Taxify story when you started out uh, is that you basically started competing against Uber with, what, $2 million in funding and basically really, really grew very fast. So what, how did you manage to do that? So, yeah, first... Uh first two or three years we, we only had 1.5 million of funding and uh, we just needed to grow organically and be very very lean and efficient so uh, when we launched africa in 2016 we did it all remotely so that meant that we didn't have even money to to fly there to meet people so we did interviews over skype we sent them a few thousand uh, euros dollars to to launch the city start training drivers and launch and then organically so so yeah, I think that's maybe one of the big differences is, is that if you look at top 10 platforms globally, we are by far the most efficient. So every single dollar we have invested, we have got at least $10 out of the of the right value or GMV, which is the main KPI in our industry. I guess this initial efficiency and you know having to preserve the capital and be very uh, careful helps you a lot now, of course, to scale. Um, but I'm wondering, like, what is the goal of like moving into scooters so rapidly and then food delivery? Isn't the the risk that you are going to lose some of that focus? Um, we we believe that we are already in a stage that uh, we have secured our position in in many of the markets where there are usually two players, us or Uber or someone else. And then now we see that uh, the market's still growing, but in order to keep really the rocket growth, we need to bring something else. And uh, part of the drivers are overlapping with these new services, but part of it is, is also totally new, where uh, for ride-hailing, the uh, regulation is still stronger, how old the cars are or uh, what's the insurance and so on. If we do other deliveries, then we can tap to totally new um, segments of people. You can deliver it with a bike or a car or or scooter whatever so so we just see that it's it's a synergy between our existing user base and adding new new features and then expanding so so yeah we we want to keep keep growing fast and then potentially even become the uh, the biggest tech company in Europe but that's still hard work and then long years ahead so fantastic but well, i love the ambition um i'm also wondering like because that pits you against the likes of takeaway.com and deliveroo and uh, you know, delivery hero. Um, I'm wondering well, when are these companies going to go into the right hailing <laughs> if it's so complementary? Uh, let's, uh, let's see. I, uh, it's, it's interesting. Competition always is, uh, is healthy uh, when, uh, when, yeah, you, you find a way and you find differentiation. And if we still look at, uh, for example, food delivery, it's not that much in Eastern Europe or Baltics. There are usually only one player in some markets. So uh, there is even no competition yet. So, so, and the same in Africa. So, uh, we, we still see that maybe we don't go to the biggest metropoles where there are several players, but there are plenty of cities where there is no one or just one. So, so yeah, we see opportunities to grow. Right. Uh, so maybe a question in the context of this conference, uh, Startup Europe Summit. Um, do you actively get involved in uh, this European policymaking? Are you trying to shape or influence uh, uh, the policymakers? 
Yeah, I, a year ago, we didn't have anyone in policy team. I was doing it really very small part of my time. So now we have focused on this. We have a very top-notch team of seven people now. And uh, and yeah, we see that by growing bigger, we, we have multiple goals here. So at first, we want to be inspiration for the other young entrepreneurs showing that uh, you can build a company. And then we actually 100% Estonian company. Our legal headquarters is there. So many other European startups, they move their HQ to US or somewhere for easier fundraising. So we want to prove it's possible to be fully European. And uh, otherwise also then yeah, explain how we see the future, what are the benefits, show Estonian examples and all of that to, to really show benefits, explain. And then we hope that politicians would understand it and, and modernize the the, the regulation, especially transport, we see that it's, it's quite outdated. It's back to nineties, even eighties in some place. So, so it's time to bring in technology and new, new opportunities. Yeah. yeah. Lots of legacy to break down. Yeah. Um, maybe final question, because you mentioned Estonia, uh, where you're not the first tech, big tech company to come out of Estonia, which is a miracle in itself in a way, uh, considering the size of the, the country and all that. Um, but what do you think more could be done to sort of, uh, Stimulate entrepreneurship in, in the Baltic. So what more can we do to, you know, encourage entrepreneurship in those regions? Yeah, we just had a discussion that we have actually now built the ecosystem last even 15 years after the Skype first was sold to eBay. So, so I mean, growing the second, uh, second time investors or, or entrepreneurs that give back to the society, invest and mentor. And so, so it takes time. And Estonia, yeah, it's been 15 years and now we have four unicorns. So. It hasn't been surprise overnight success. It's actually long term and government really focusing on it. And what we like about Estonia is that it hasn't, no matter the government, everyone has been really uh, supporting their startups. And, and we have round table with the prime minister and different things that actually to, to improve the, the challenges, to improve the laws and so on. So, so this is what we have achieved and, and how to do it. So you need to have clear collaboration and and specific goals, accountability, and then you can make the changes work. So that's the, the Estonian example. Great. Well, let's uh, hope it stays that way with all the changes in Estonian politics as well. Uh, but thank you so much for taking your time and uh, the best of luck with Bold. Yeah, thank you and good luck. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the podcast of tech.eu. We're still here with uh, uh, my usual co-host, Natalie Novik, uh, coming from uh, Edinburgh. So, Natalie, what are the events that we should be looking forward to in the next few weeks? Yeah, so, of course, this week, the big event is Startup Olay, which is in Salamanca, Spain. And we will be releasing a new report on the 2018 investment data in Europe with some of the findings from the last year in terms of private funding. So do look out for that on the website, and it will be coming out in the next few days. And looking just beyond that, we're still staying in Spain here, but this time we're going to Valencia on April 4th through 5th, which is the Sesame Summit, which is a great event. And it's all about curating collaboration and building networks between people in the tech community. And there's a number of key themes for impact, food tech, clean tech, fintech and mobility. And Andre will be there. So do give him a shout out um, if, if you're if you see him. And it's a really great venue that they're that it's a great community event. Um, and always has really good attendance from some of Europe's most important ecosystem players. So it's a conference I wish that was more well known. And if you're around Valencia, April 4th and 5th, you should check that out. 
The other event I want you to check out this month, well, actually coming up next month very shortly, held on April 3rd and 4th, is the Arch Summit, which is in Luxembourg. And it's an event that I think has really great promise, which is it aims to bridge the gap between startups and corporates, which is a really key initiative um, for companies today. And I think it's great that there is an event that's really focuses on this exclusively and and it's put on by Vodafone and their partners. Uh, It looks like a really great event and you can find all of these different events on our website. So please do check the event section of, of our site and right in the top heading bar under events. And if you have a suggestion of an event to add, please let us know at the link in the show notes. Yeah, I have to say that uh, I think it's, getting more and more sort of mainstream uh, to do all this uh, startup uh, corporate uh, matchmaking uh, at uh, at different events. I think uh, Viva Tech this year is going to be very much focused uh, on this kind of thing. So yeah, there is more and more of that. As for the Sesame Summit, by the way, I'm going to be uh, moderating a panel about uh, scaling up mobility startups, if I'm not mistaken. So, And I'm definitely going to say something about my favorite topic of e-scooters. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that very much. I would expect nothing less from you, Andre, and I'm sure that will be a great session. If nobody mentions blockchain, I will be a very happy person. (laughs) Now, moving further, uh, let's get to the recommendation part of the podcast. And mine is pretty short today. So just the other day, I read a really interesting story uh, that's titled uh, No Sleep, No Sex, No Life. Tech workers in China's Silicon Valley face burnout before they reach 30. It is an interesting inside look at the Chinese startup ecosystem, uh, which, uh, judging by the piece, uh, consists mostly of founders facing early burnout on one side and then employees that are constantly overworked uh, on the other side. And there is this uh, 996 work week rule uh, that means that uh, people work from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six six days a week. And it's a real thing in uh, tech companies in China. And it's definitely taking its toll right now, mental and physical, and many people are seemingly starting to think about uh, reaching a better work-life balance. Unfortunately, however, this uh, thought comes to people at the same time as the Chinese economy actually slows down a little bit, and there is even more pressure uh, being put on both founders and employees. So check out uh, this piece. It's really interesting. And there are, I think, some inevitable parallels to be drawn between that and the Silicon Valley itself uh, and uh, the European uh, startup ecosystem. Natalie, did you read this story? Um, I haven't had a chance to yet, but this is a topic that I've really been following for, for a long time. And it's something we've mentioned on the podcast before, yeah. this 996. And it gives an indication of the potentially law of diminishing returns of kind of really working as hard as possible, um, flat out, and kind of what are the potential ramifications of that. Um, it doesn't seem like a very positive environment um, to be in. No, not at all. Especially because I see a lot of startups is being very creative exercises and kind of forcing creativity is very difficult. And we're thinking about startups as businesses that are kind of built outside the box. So they're taking very novel approaches to existing problems and really applying innovative technologies to them. And that's something I don't think particularly um, works well being forced out of people. Um, we think about incremental building and, and different sorts of things, but it 
at the end of the day, a lot of these companies are very creative enterprises and I'm not sure how how well that can be fostered in such a kind of full steam ahead environment. Oh, it does seem to me that there are a lot of people who think that it should work just fine. Yeah. And at a certain scale, and and I know there is tons of government investment being plowed into these companies. And at yeah. a certain extent, they were it was really easy to kind of bring in new new workers or if people weren't kind of up to scratch, there was always someone ready to take their place. But at a certain point, if everyone is kind of getting burned out and you're running out of great staff for these businesses, um, scaling and growing is going to be really challenging. Yeah, and there was an interesting uh, number as well in that piece that 8% of the failed startups in China, so the main reason for the failure uh, was actually uh, burnout. So burnout was cited by the founders that uh, as the main reason they failed. I think it's a lot. I think it's a, it's a very, very, very high number. Yeah, and it, shouldn't it, be sound, that way. it sounds like it. And I know burnout is always a part of every startup ecosystem, every environment you're working under. These are very high, high growth companies are always going to be a stressful environment, but it seems like this case in China is more so than would be acceptable um, in other, in other places. Yeah, that's because normally in the ecosystem, you should be actually try to kind of decrease uh, the effect of this. And it seems like uh, uh, there in uh, in the Chinese Silicon Valley, as they call it in the piece, it's actually the other way around. They put even more and more and more pressure and um, almost encourage people to work until they burn out and then nobody would care at all. Yeah. Anyway, do you have anything more, anything more uh, positive to recommend today? <laughs> Yeah, well, for my piece and my recommendation this week, I wanted to talk a little bit about Mario Gabriel's opening speech at the Startup Europe Summit. And it really kind of cast this um, kind of key arc over the event of kind of the key initiatives and things that we should be keeping in mind as we were meeting and connecting. Um, and I first, before I go any further, I want to give a big shout out to our podcast listener, Lewis, who connected with me in person. It's great whenever we're at events to meet uh, podcast listeners out in the wild. But going back to this speech, so Maria Gabriel, of course, is the European Commissioner for the Digital Economy and Society. And many of you may know her, especially from the Copyright Directive, which, of course, is another topic that we touched on. Um, but she opened the Startup Europe Summit in Cluj with a really great speech that I think is very illustrative of some of the priorities that the Commission has when it comes to the digital economy, what it wants to see, and some of the things it is prepared to do to make those things happen, especially when it comes to startups. And some of the things she highlighted that European startup hubs remain clustered and concentrated in a few areas, and these need to be better distributed across the continent, and that current funding levels still remain insufficient, and it's largely driven by public support. Something she highlighted was institutional investors, such as sovereign funds, pension funds, are largely absent from European VC investment in tech companies, and a more diverse funding pool really is necessary. It's not just quantity, but really where is the money coming from? 
So she goes on to highlight some of the things of what it will take to make European startups more successfully successful. So namely funding, of course, network and values. Like these were the three main pillars that she really touched on. And to this effort, the commission is dedicating their activities in first in investment through the Digital Europe Program and the European Innovation Council, which are two really huge funds that will support startups at all different stages. Next, they're working to invest in network building across Europe. And you might have seen some examples that are already in operation, such as Soft Landing, the Erasmus for Entrepreneurs Program, and My Gateway. So do check those out if these are new or unfamiliar to you. And the idea is to really especially get entrepreneurs, founders, tech team members that are maybe working outside the main hubs or the ecosystems that are talked about most notably, and really to build bridges all around Europe. And the final point she really kind of brought home, and it's something that really resonated with much of the audience there, was addressing values and promoting the the value and mindset and this culture of risk and thinking about risk in a positive way. And the point about taking chances is the only way to find opportunity and really being open to accepting risk, being not afraid to fail. And I really appreciate this vision. And I think it's important for anyone that's building a startup in Europe to kind of understand and know what the EU is working on in this space. Unfortunately, I think activities and kind of outcomes such as a copyright directive, things like this can sometimes turn off entrepreneurs from engaging with the EU um, and from participating in some of the programs. But I think this is an example that really illustrates how important it is for founders and entrepreneurs to be in conversation with the EU and the Commission. So the big voices that were involved in the copyright directive came from organized interests, of which startups and founders generally are not a part of. But Startup Europe and the European Commission, they work for you as European founders. So I urge you to connect with them and look at their offerings. They really do have a lot um, available for founders at all different stages and really to have your voice heard. And it's in my experience that they are very open to connecting with founders, to understanding the different challenges that you might be having, and really to pointing you to different initiatives, programs, funding streams that might be appropriate to you. And they are very responsive. So take, so have a moment and have a look at some of the offerings that Startup Europe has. There's so many different programs they have available. And we'll leave a link to um, her speech and also to Startup Europe if you want to have a look at that. Because you never know, there might be a really great fit to, to what you're working on. And it makes sense that they are working for you. So you might as well take advantage of the opportunities that are out there. Yeah, this is a good point. And uh, we discussed it before uh, we started recording today. But it is really surprising for me uh, that uh, someone who is in charge of digital economy at the European Commission would be actually pro-copyright directive, which could only be, in my opinion, explained by uh, Maria not uh, hearing enough from startups. Because she doesn't strike me as someone who would be uh, doing things against the interest of the ecosystem. So maybe it is indeed the case of the European Commission in many cases being uh, in their own echo chamber of sorts and not uh, not hearing enough independent voices. 
And and I think it's it's really important to make your voice heard on all of these things. It's one thing to I mean, I'm I'm getting all these notifications on Twitter. Oh, are you gonna talk about how the copyright directive is gonna slow down startups in Europe and all these things? It's one thing to be kind of speaking to the internet about your concerns, but another to be directly responding to those that actually are in charge of things. Let them know. Um, because sometimes I honestly don't think they get enough um, feedback um, and it's important that that you are directing that to somewhere where it can be actioned upon um, and it I think that's that's very very important to remember sometimes and just to finish off the topic of the copyright directive for today at least I would say that there is still something that uh, you as a startup founder or a startup employee or an ecosystem builder or a community member can do and uh, there is still the implementation stage obviously uh, so each country will still have to decide how exactly they will implement the copyright directive on the local level and uh, then you as a member of the community should definitely engage with the authorities of your respective country and at least try to make it work on this uh, local level so that <clears throat> and I mean if everyone every every startup in every country will do this then we will still arrive to something much better than what was passed today in the european parliament now i guess it's time to wrap it up this is it for today's podcast i hope you enjoyed it thanks a lot for listening if you're not subscribed yet to this podcast do it today on your favorite podcast app if you're listening to this on itunes please take a minute to leave us a review this will help others find the show uh, tell a friend or colleague about the podcast and follow our updates on twitter at tech underscore eu please feel free to email us with any questions suggestions and opinions at andri at tech.eu and natalie at tech.eu natalie Thank you so much for joining today. Thank you, Andre. And please say hi to Andre, any of you who are going to the Startup Sesame Summit. Yes. See you in Spain. Thanks for listening again. Enjoy the rest of your week and talk to you next Wednesday. Bye bye. <laughs>